Thanks, John. Well, we do invite uh, now any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, who'd like to head off to Children's Church. You can find that uh, through the door over here by the piano. And we'd love for you to head off to Children's Church if you'd like. The rest of you, would you open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 this morning? Hebrews 11, it's on page 1191 if you're using a pew Bible. Hebrews uh, chapter 11, today we're studying verses 4 to 6 as we're slowly but surely working our way through chapter 11, the famous hall of faith in Hebrews, looking at different Old Testament characters and what they can teach us about what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to have faith, why faith is so important. So, this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. Let me just read the passage. It says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken... He was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So, does anyone here besides me uh, struggle at times with being a bit of a people pleaser? Yes, I see some heads nodding. That's good. I'm pleased that you're nodding your head. I thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah, you know, there's a, I think all of us, at least in some circumstances, have this drive to want to do and say things that would make people approve of us or affirm us, uh, some of us more often than others. And, and, and so we have this kind of mental algorithm that's running when we're in people-pleaser mode, where, where we're calculating as we're looking at somebody whether or not, uh, you know, who they are, what they want, and what it is we can do that would win their approbation. And so, uh, whether it's a boss that we're trying to please, or maybe it's a, a girl or a guy that we're interested in and we want them to like us, or maybe it's our parents, or in some cases, our children. Um, in some cases, it's a teacher, or maybe a pastor, or someone else in authority, or whatever it is, there's some person that, that we want their approval and them to be pleased with us. So we make these guesses about what they want and then we adjust ourselves. Maybe we adjust our speech. We, we say certain things or we don't say certain things. Um, we, we adjust our behavioral patterns. We engage in things or don't engage in things that we think will align us with that person's favor. Um, or maybe in some cases we change our hairstyle. We change our clothing. I mean, it's, it's amazing the lengths we'll go to sometimes to adopt and adapt ourselves so that people will approve of us in some way or another. So we overachieve, we overextend, we overcommit. We, we actually we get overwhelmed because it's an exhausting kind of thing trying to make people happy. But as Christians, isn't it so liberating to know that there's just one person that we have to please and that if we please Him, it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks? That as Christians, we can renounce the idolatry of human approval. Because that's really what it is. It's an idolatry. 
It's a worship and a seeking of people rather than of God. As Christians, we're learning what it means to no longer fear man, but instead to live in the fear of God. It's part of our Christian life together. And you know, one of the great things about trying to please God, if, if you only have to please God, the great thing about Him is you don't have to guess what He wants. You know, with people, it's like, you know, what do you want? Do you want this? Do you want to be more like that? How about if I talk this way? And you're always trying to figure people out. And you find out some people you can't even please. And it's exhausting. But with God... <laughs> yeah, we have to talk afterwards there. It's, a, it's obviously something going on. Yeah. I'll tell you what, God just tells us what He wants. I love that about God. God is truthful. God is honest. There's, there's, there's not hiddenness there as to what He wants from us. God is pleased by faith. Faith pleases God. That's what He wants from us, is faith. It's pretty simple. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. God wants us to trust Him he wants faith. We don't have to climb up and down the, the steps of the Vatican on our knees until they bleed. And we don't have to you know, give our bodies to the fire unless He commands it. But, but we just have to trust Him. He just wants faith. It's so, so wonderfully simple. It is impossible to please God without faith. And then we have these two stories, verse 4 and verse 5. These two biblical characters who are people of faith. And they give us examples of how they pleased God by their faith. We have the story of Abel in verse 4. Then we have the story of Enoch in verse 5. So we have two practical examples from the Old Testament of this principle in verse 6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. So let's start with the first example and just see how this plays itself out. Look at verse 4. It says, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. So here we have Abel. God appreciated his offering rather than Cain's and it was because of faith. Now, maybe you're familiar or unfamiliar with the story of Cain and Abel, but even if you're familiar, maybe you're a little rusty, I think we should go back and read the original story of Cain and Abel just to see how this works out. So put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. One of the reasons I wanted to go slowly through Hebrews 11 was so that we could go back and delve into some of these great Old Testament stories. Here's Genesis chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel. So first book of the Bible, Genesis 4, and we'll just look at verses 1 to 8. Here's this famous story. It says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. So here you got Adam and Eve booted from the Garden of Eden, and yet God's grace is evident because they're able to have children, the human race is going on, and they have these two sons, first of many kids, Cain and Abel. And then we learn a bit, little bit about them in verse 2. Abel kept the flocks, he was a shepherd, and Cain worked the soil. Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, whenever 
you read that portion, this question kind of jumps up from the text. What was the, what was the problem with Cain? Why did God approve of Abel's offering and not approve of Cain and his offering? What, what was it that was the distinguishing characteristic? And it's kind of tough to tell because there's this serious, clear rejection of one and acceptance of the other, but the text doesn't really tell us explicitly it doesn't say that like God accepted Cain's because, or rejected Cain's because, da 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 da. It just says he rejected him and he accepted the other. So people, you know, they read this and they try to figure out what was wrong with the offering. And different theories emerge. Uh, one theory is that the, the problem was that Abel's offering was accepted because it was a blood sacrifice, whereas Cain's offering was rejected because he just offered some produce. I don't know what, wheat or whatever he farmed grain or fruit trees or whatever. So there's this theory that it was the kind of offering they brought. Cain was rejected because he brought the right, wrong kind of offering. And as, as I thought about that interpretation, I really don't think that's correct. I, I think that's the wrong interpretation of the text. And I'll tell you why. First of all, it seems just from the story that these men are simply bringing what they produce. You know, I mean, there seems to be a clear point here. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd. And so these guys are just bringing what they produce. They're bringing an offering. So the point of the text doesn't seem to be that Cain brought the wrong kind of thing. Not only that, but if you look later in uh, the, the first few books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, you see that God actually commands the Israelites, who are farmers, to bring an offering of their produce. Right? So God says, I want a first fruit of your harvest, of your wheat, your barley, your grain, your grapes from your vineyards. I want a first fruit of your fruit trees. I want your produce as an offering to me as well. So if there's something inherently wrong with an offering of grain or produce, why would God command it? So I don't think that's the problem. So why, again, did God accept Abel and reject Cain? Perhaps there's more of a hint, not only in, not in the, the type of offering that was brought, but the quality of the offering. Perhaps that, I think that's getting a little bit closer there. Look again at verse 3. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So perhaps there's a subtle contrast there in the quality. You know, Cain just brought some stuff that he had made, but Abel brought the first fruits, the firstborn, which they're commanded to do, and the fat portions. In other words, you know, the juiciest, best part of the offering. He brought to God. So perhaps it was the quality. Cain brought sort of like, yeah, grade C stuff. And Abel brought grade A. And so God accepted his and the other. I think that that's related to, to it, but I don't think that's itself the nub of the issue. And in fact, it still does not say in the text that that's the issue. We're, we're still trying to figure it out. The, the reality is that the text is quite silent, isn't it? on why God accepted one and not the other. You look at it from the outside and you see two guys making offerings and it's actually a little bit surprising that one's accepted and the other's not. And so it's not clear to us looking at it from the outside. And maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is it's not something visible about the ritual itself Maybe the reason one is accepted and one is rejected is because it is, in fact, something invisible within them that only God can see. That as the outside observer, we look at them and we see two guys worshiping God, but God can see into their hearts and sees there's a difference. 
Um, now, just to, to, be, to sort of show from the text why I think that's the case. Isn't it interesting? Let, let me give you four quick arguments for why I think fundamentally the, the deepest problem is the attitude of their hearts. Something was wrong within their heart, within Cain's heart and right within Abel's heart. Notice, first of all, what it says in uh, verse 4. It says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. So it was Abel himself that was winning favor with God. And then it says, on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So it's very clear. It's God's looking with favor on the person. There's something about these people that's pleasing or displeasing God. Or look at the second proof. It's at the end of verse 5. Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. He wanted to bring something to God. It was rejected. And his response was anger. And, and you know, he's just, it's not, not sort of humility. Not like, oh, okay, God. Uh, what do I need to do? I, I'm sorry. You know, how, he was, you know, how, oh, how come I didn't get accepted? Why isn't my thing taken? He's so angry. Do you see that? So obviously, there's something going on inside of him that's out of, uh, out of line. And then the third evidence. Look at verse 6. God talks to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why are you acting like this? What's wrong? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right... Sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That's a wonderful Hebrew word, crouching. It's the, it's the Hebrew word that's used to describe a predator, you know, like on the Discovery Channel. And they always show the lion, you know, slowly coming up on the antelope. You know, it's that same word. Sin is crouching and it wants to devour you. There is a predator ready to attack you called sin. Now, we can't see that in the story, but God sees it in his heart. God realizes there's something cooking inside of him where he's on the verge of being overtaken by sinful desires. And then, of course, the ultimate evidence is verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Obviously, something was not right inside of Cain. You know, I, I don't think that, it, and, and likely, I don't think it was just this one incident that brought him to this point. Something probably had not been right inside of Cain. And so, the writer of Hebrews, reflecting on this text, go back to Hebrews chapter 11 now, verse 4. The writer of Hebrews, I think, is spot on when he identifies that the key issue here wasn't the type of offering, and not even the quality of the offering, except to the extent that the quality reflected the person's heart. In that sense, I think it was the quality of the offering. But that really wasn't, that was just an evidence of what was really going on inside. The real problem is faith or lack of faith. Verse 4 By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than did Cain. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. It was his faith in God. So you have two men bringing offerings that we look on the outside and we go, two religious guys. Cool. But God says, no, no, one religious guy, one hypocrite. Because one is bringing an offering out of faith and out of hope and trust to glorify and know and honor God. The other person is bringing an offering, but some, you know, there's all kinds of garbage going on in there. He has all kinds of flawed motives. He's not seeking God. He's not loving his brother. Something is broken, even as he engages in worship. And as I was thinking about that, I... You know, I, I just I couldn't help but think about our own actions of public worship as we gather as a congregation. 
You know, it's such an interesting story, isn't it? Two guys who seem religious. You know, it's not as if Abel is offering something and Cain is at home sleeping off a hangover. They're both offering. They both seem religious, but one is accepted, one is rejected. And I was just thinking if if an outsider were to come into our church and watch us on a Sunday morning, you know, and watch me on a Sunday morning and look around and say, look at these people, they go through the actions of worship. We, we sing the songs with gusto. Your singing this morning was beautiful. You know, I loved it. I love listening to the congregation sing. We sing songs. We put money in the offering plate. We bow our heads when we pray. We open our Bibles when Seth says, open your Bible. We, we take notes. You know, we, on communion Sundays, we take the elements. On baptism Sundays, people are baptized. You know, so we, the religious actions are taking place. And someone could come in and look at us and say, wow, what a religious group of people. But I wonder what God sees when He looks at us. And that's something only God knows. He looks at our hearts. Maybe God would say something like, actually, it's some religious people and some who you know, are in the wrong place spiritually in terms of their hearts. So it's a real challenge, this text. You know? It made me ask myself, why am I in church? And why do I come? Am I really coming to seek the Lord, to know Him and glorify Him and give Him my praise and worship? Is that my main drive when I come here, even as the pastor? Or am I here because, because I am the pastor and, well, that's my job. I've got to be there. You know? What's my drive in being here? You know, why, you know, to those of you who lead in public worship, what's your motivation for leading in public worship? What is your motivation for being here in, as part of the worship service? We've got to ask ourselves this. Um, are we here because someone else wants us to be here? Are we here to please somebody? Who are we here to please? Why do we do the things that we do out of tradition, out of habit, out of a sense of self-righteousness? What is it that's really driving us to God? And do we realize it's possible to be worshiping God outwardly and yet to have our offerings rejected because of where our hearts are at? You know, do we, do we spend our time in worship services critiquing and analyzing? I have to confess to you, Eric, true confession time. I struggle with critiquing and analyzing. I, I have such a hard time worshiping in other churches. You know, I go on vacation somewhere to go to another church. It, it's terrible. I sit there and analyze the whole time. You know, like I'm some expert or something. <laughs> and it's like, aren't, weren't you supposed to be here to worship God, Jeremy? Then why are you sitting here critiquing everything? And I understand there's, there's part of it that we're, we're logical human beings. We take in information. You have to assess things, but, but like, what's my main drive for being in church somewhere, or even in my own church? And, and is it not to worship God, or is it something else? And I just struggle with that sometimes, to have my heart focused on truly loving, seeking, and glorifying God. Or we could even take it a step further. Do we, in fact, have a Cain-like anger, grudge, and bitterness in our hearts when we worship? That's even possible. To be in church, you know, singing the songs and, and yet be filled up with anger and venom and hostility toward perhaps like Cain, a brother or sister in the body or maybe someone in our family. And, you know, just how contrary that is. Do you think God is pleased when we're filled up with anger, hatred, resentment, hostility, gossip, slander, and we sit there and worship Him? Do you think God's pleased? Okay, no, he's not. <laughs> just to answer the rhetorical question. Let me just read to you from 1 John chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. 
I'll just read it to you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We have to beware of that Cain-like anger and hostility and venom that can creep into our souls even in public worship. Because what pleases God is faith. This is what God is looking for from us. Faith. Faith in Him. Man looks on the outward appearance. Can you finish the verse? God looks on the heart. God sees our hearts. And He knows what's inside of us. And so it's really a call here to honor God by faith and and to beware of ritualism in religion which can creep in so easily. To simply go through the motions and sometimes not even know why we're doing it or what got us there. And so it's it's a call that by faith we honor God. Look at verse 6 again back in Hebrews 11. For without faith it is impossible to please God. We only need to please one person, that's God, and He's pleased by faith. Now that raises a sort of a logical question in my mind or a curiosity question. And the question is, why is it then that faith pleases God? What is it about faith that's so tasty to God? What is it about faith that's so attractive to our Maker that when God sees faith, He's like, ooh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy with that. Why is faith pleasing to God? And I think we see that in verse 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because anyone who comes to Him must believe two things. One, that He exists. And two, that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So this is why faith is so pleasing to God. Because it involves these two components. One, you have to believe that God exists. And number two, that He rewards those who seek Him. So first of all, you have to believe God exists. Which is, you know, sounds kind of obvious, but... It's probably good to say that. To please God, the first thing we have to do is actually acknowledge that there is a God. You know, it's not like when little kids fight sometimes and they get really mad at each other. And the ultimate punishment they inflict on each other is to pretend the other one doesn't exist. You know, like, can't you see me? I don't, I don't hear anything. You, you know, I must not be here. You know, Mom, have you seen Joey? He's right there. No, I don't see him. You know, it's like, it drives people crazy. To pretend, you know, talk about the ultimate cold shoulder. To pretend like someone doesn't exist. And yet, some people don't believe God exists. How can you please God if we don't believe He exists? I was talking to a pastor in a a local church who was just telling me he's trying to preach the gospel in his church and just what a challenge it is that he had the moderator of his church who was an atheist. You know? It's like, what do you do when the moderator of your church is an atheist? I'm really glad Herb Heth is a a theist. I mean, that's really helpful to to me in my ministry here, uh, that he's a good Christian man. But to have an atheist as the moderator, have an atheist leading your church, people, that's not uncommon around New England. That's not a far-out thing, to have people in leadership in churches who don't even believe in the existence of God or who are at best agnostics. So first of all, you have to believe that God exists. But then I love it. There's another step beyond that. We must believe that He exists. Here we go and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So faith is not just saying, I believe there's a God somewhere who created things. It's going the next step and saying, I will seek Him. I love that adjective that the NIV uses here. Earnestly. I'm seeking God. 
I want to know Him, honor Him, love Him, obey Him, walk with God. There's a, a yearning to truly know God here that's more than just believing in His existence. And I think that's really helpful because my guess is, even though there are some people who are atheists, most people in America are not atheists. You look at the Gallup surveys they do every year. And they do these surveys, do you believe in God? The, the large percentage of Americans do believe in God. And of the, that large majority that believes in God, you know, I think it's like over 90%, that of those, most of them, or a large majority of those, believe in a Judeo-Christian version of God. So belief in God isn't the problem. I think it's this next step, isn't it? To go beyond just saying, yeah, yeah, God's out there, I believe in God, of course, to saying, I will earnestly Seek Him with the confident expectation that He can be found and that He rewards those who seek Him. I think that's the missing step. You know, it's one thing to believe Florida's there. It's another thing to pack up, buy a ticket, and go. I'm seeking Florida, especially in February. <laughs> you know, I want to go there. I want to be there. And so it's the same thing. I want to go to God. I want to know Him and earnestly seek Him like Enoch did. Enoch is our example of a man who not just believed in God, but he sought God. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. And here's the pleasing part. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Let's go back and read the story of Enoch and see how he pleased God and how he sought God. Look, it's in Genesis 5. So bookmark Hebrews. Back to Genesis 5. This one's a lot shorter story. Okay, so Genesis 5. This is one of those genealogies in, in the Bible that people just go, what in the world is this here for? So-and-so begat so-and-so, and then he died, and then that person begat so-and-so, and he died, and then that person begat so-and-so, and he lived 500 years, and then he died. And you get this kind of litany of, of the genealogies from Adam down to Noah. And right in the middle of chapter 5 of Genesis, from Adam to Noah, you get this interesting character who appears named Enoch. And there's two things about Enoch. Number one, it says that he walked with God. And number two, it never mentions his death. It just says the Lord took him. God just took him away. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, aren't you glad your parents didn't call you Methuselah? I mean, really. Poor guy. And he had to live with it longer than anyone else. Um, <laughs> Enoch lived 65 years. He became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. you see that twice? Enoch walked with God, verse 22. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. The only person, it doesn't say he died at the end of his genealogy. What a picture of seeking God to walk with God. Enoch walked with God. I love that. It's so simple and yet it's just so rich. You know, To walk with someone. It's a very Hebraic uh, Jewish concept. This idea of living your life as walking with somebody. You know, something great. I love going for walks. You go with walk, on a walk with someone. There's nothing to do except relate. That's the great thing about walking. When you're walking with someone, 
there's no telephone unless you bring your cell phone. Hopefully you leave that at home. And, and you, there's no telephone, there's no email, there's no chores, there's nothing to clean, there's no papers to review. You just walk with someone and you talk as you go. You know, my wife and I, we love to walk. When we were courting in college, that was one of our favorite things. We'd just go for walks, walk all over the place. Walked around the college campus, walked around town. You just talk, talk. Even after we were married, before kids, we, uh, we, we would just talk. We'd go for walks at night and relate to each other. You get home from work, I was in seminary, and we'd eat, and it would be warm in the summer. We'd say, what do you want to do? Let's just go for a walk. And we'd just stroll around. And it's so wonderful just having time like that uninterrupted to talk. And all the good conversations take time to come out. You can't just sit down and be like, all right, let's have a quality conversation. It just takes time. You've got to go for walks. We've been trying to do that with our kids. You know, some days, one of those rare days when we're not all like in soccer games and doing all these crazy things, and we have time together, like, what are we going to do? Let's go for a walk. We pack the kids into the the uh, minivan, and we go to the nearest, you know, park or whatever, and we'll just walk around for an hour. And it's great, all the conversations that come out. I would just encourage you to walk with your families, walk with your spouse, walk with your friends. It's a great way to, to just get to know each other and relate to each other. And so what a picture here of Enoch walking with God. He's just hanging out with God. He knew God. Not just on worship times, not just Abel worshiping God at the appointed feast times, not just Sunday morning, so to speak, but when they went out the door on Monday, walking with God and relating to God and knowing Him. There's an older uh, gentleman in our church. I won't embarrass him by saying his name, but he's, he's a very godly man. He's a man of prayer. He's the kind of guy, there's just some people, you, you pray with them and it's like, they have like the, the red, you know, bat phone to heaven. And it feels like, they're really just talking directly to God in a way that's really startling and appealing. Uh, and that's how this guy is when he prays. He, he's so soaked in the Word. He knows God's Word so well. He just can quote it all the time. And so another brother in the church was asking this older brother, you know, uh, how did you get there so close with God? What, what, what's your thing? And then he said something really funny. He said six letters. He said NB, NP, NB. And it's like, what? And it stands for no Bible, no prayer, no breakfast. And that's how he sought to live for decades. No Bible, no prayer, no breakfast. He's like, that's my thing. Before I get up, before I do anything else to feed myself, I hang out with God. I open His Word, I read it, and I talk to Him. And it's like, brilliant! It's so simple. Oh, you just walk with God. You go for a walk with God. No Bible, no prayer, no breakfast. And I'm sure he hasn't kept that perfectly. I mean, who could? But just that idea of taking seriously. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you see it in the life of a man who has cultivated a walk with God. Like Enoch, he walks with God. And I love it. One day, Enoch just wasn't there. It's like God was like, hey, you know what, Enoch? Look, you're closer to my house than to yours. Let's just come home with me. Come on, Enoch, let's go. I'm going to take you home. As he was so close with the Lord. And so that is what faith is. That Now, I go back to Hebrews 11. I understand now why faith makes God so happy. Why does God love faith? Because faith isn't just believing that He exists. Faith is seeking Him to know Him, to even be willing to deny yourself in order to have God. 
So in other words, the reason God loves faith is because unlike anything else, faith glorifies God. Faith glorifies God. Faith says to the world, the best thing on planet earth a human being can ever have would be to know and walk with God. And the person of faith shines that that glory of God from their person. You know, you meet a person like that who does no Bible, no prayer, no breakfast. Not that you should follow that in some legalistic rule-keeping kind of way. It's not about the rules. It's about that heart that's saying, I want to know God. And you see a person like that, and, and they glorify God just because of the orientation of their life. When we really seek God above all else, it's like our lives are those big... You know when they open up a movie or a mattress store or whatever, and they bring those huge, annoying spotlights that are just huge things, and they shine up in the sky, and you can see them from miles around. That's what our lives become. You know, it's all these people around us, but when we say with our lives in tangible ways, God is what I'm seeking above all else. Our lives become a huge spotlight and people just can't help but noticing where we're pointing with our lives. Whether we're in church on Sunday morning or whether we're out walking with God during our week, it is the life of faith that glorifies God and God just loves that. And God rewards that. That's the last part there. Do you see that in verse, going back to Hebrews 11? We must believe that God exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. What is the reward that we get? I think the answer is the reward is we get God Himself. God is the reward we seek. Or to put it in Hebrews terms here, to be commended by God, to be pleasing to God. Or the other word that we haven't talked about, it's to be considered righteous by God. I love that word righteous. That God declares us in a right standing with Him. And how does a human being, sinful human being like us, become righteous before God? And the answer is by faith. As it says in verse 4, by faith Abel was commended as a righteous man. It was his faith that laid hold of righteousness. This theme is here in Hebrews. Look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. My righteous one will live by faith. Or look down at Hebrews 11, verse 7. Talking about Noah. We're going to study Noah next Sunday. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Here we go. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that comes how? By faith. So we receive a right standing with God and a connection with God and we grab hold of it by faith. The message of the Gospel is that God has provided a righteousness that comes through faith. Our sinful human tendency is to think that we are made right with God by providing God with something that He needs. You know, God, look what I've done. Look, you know, God, I've, I've gone to church, I've put money in the offering plate, I've been gone to confirmation, I've you know, done whatever, and, and we bring to God our religious rituals as if because of that, God has to say, well, I accept you on the basis of your rituals. That's not faith. That's works. That's self, self-faith, not faith in God. Or outside of church, we come to God and say, look, God, I'm, I really am a good person. I build a house for Habitat for Humanity. I, uh, I, I raced for a cure. 
I'm, uh, I haven't murdered anybody, I pay my taxes, I'm a decent person. And again, we come to God with our little pile in our hands of the things that we think will make us acceptable to God. But the problem is, as good as those things may be, the motive is wrong and our sin is so great, we could never make ourselves acceptable to God on the basis of our works and our actions. And so the amazing message of the Bible is that God has provided a righteousness that we could not make for our own. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ offered the acceptable sacrifice. He's the true Abel. He offered Himself. Jesus Christ is the true Enoch. No one has ever perfectly walked with God except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was taken away. He is the one who is righteous before God. And so we come to God not saying, look at, I'm pretty good, check me out. We come to God by faith saying, God, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And we come with the empty hands of faith saying, God, clothe me with a righteousness and an acceptance that I cannot earn for myself. So I'll leave you with this question then we'll close in prayer. Are you clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? <coughs> Have you received Christ's righteousness or are you, by faith or are you still trusting in your own righteousness before God? It's so simple. All God is looking for is for us to depend upon Him by faith. Let's pray. I just invite you to take this time. We'll just take a minute here of silence. And would you just spend this time responding to God in your own hearts silently? Maybe you, you want to call out for greater faith. Maybe we need to confess lack of faith in our hearts, self-righteousness. Maybe there's anger and resentment that we need to confess and, and ask God how to, how to uh, respond to that appropriately. Maybe you need to come to Jesus for the first time and give up trusting in your religion and instead trust in the righteousness of Christ and just call out to Him and say, Jesus, save me. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. So would you just spend a minute in silent prayer? Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. We offer them by faith in You. In Your name, Amen. Let's stand together. We want to respond to the Lord this morning. Let's declare one of the, the great hymns of the church to him. My Jesus, I love thee.
some we can pray for you uh, about, we'd love to do that. This evening, 5 o'clock, we'll be back here down in the Fellowship Hall for a prayer and uh, discussion service. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, your grace, your goodness that never fails. Fill our hearts with love for you, that we might honor you with everything we do and say and everything we are, according to your will. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace.